Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 17. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that you have given us one day a week to rest from our labors, to worship you, to draw strength from your word, to uh, fellowship together, to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we might run with endurance the race set before us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would manifest your presence with us, that your word would enter deep within our hearts, that you would give us um, uh, minds that are focused. We pray that you would uh, sanctify your people this morning, bless this lesson, give us understanding, make us to go from this place loving you more and following you more and knowing more of your glory and grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And again, this is um, uh, just for the purpose of entering us into a discussion on typology. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So there, the Apostle Paul explicitly says that Adam was a type, in Greek, a tupos of the one to come, of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain a bit more about the representative nature of these two men, Adam and Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Um, You see that the Apostle Paul is very clear, there's no confusion here about uh, Paul telling us that Adam, the first man that God ever made, Adam is called um, a son of God in Luke chapter 3, God created a garden and he put his son in it. And he, he put the head of humanity in that garden and Adam was sinless and he represented all men and then um, Adam fell and he brought death to not only himself but to all of us, that's why we die and sin spread throughout um, all generations to every descendant of Adam, the corrupt nature passed, the condemnation, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to the descendants of Adam until Jesus comes and he is called the second Adam and he represents his people. He represents them by his perfect life and by his atoning death and he represents them fully and he represents them as the head of the new humanity. That is essentially what the scriptures say about Jesus, that he is the second Adam. He is the son of God and God establishes the dwelling place of God. And when we come to the end of the Bible, there is a garden and Jesus has opened the way back to the garden as the second Adam. Adam as the head of a new humanity who by his obedience has merited life for us and has done all things, reversing everything the first Adam did and doing everything the first Adam failed to do. That's the central theme of the scripture, Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And and Paul uses uh, the word here. He was a type. Adam was a tupas of the one to come. Now, 
The New Testament has many explicit statements of things in the Old Testament, Testament that were types of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that um, Solomon was a type. He said a greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to see the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus came. He displayed that wisdom before Israel. They rejected him. And he said, listen, if the queen of the south would travel land and sea to come and see the wisdom of Solomon, and yet I'm standing in front of you, I'm greater than Solomon. I, he was a type of me and you're rejecting me. So in Matthew 12, Jesus explicitly says Solomon typified the Redeemer in some sense. And then he goes on and he says that Jonah was a type. He says that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. And then Jesus also says that uh, the ladder that Jacob saw in his dream in John chapter one, remember Jacob had that dream and the ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. And, and Jesus said to Nathaniel in John chapter one, you believe you'll see greater things than this. You'll see greater things than me knowing you are sitting under a tree. You'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And so Jesus says the ladder that Jacob saw in his dream was a type of Jesus. And then in John 3, Jesus says that the serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness, that whenever the bitten Israelites would look to that serpent, they would be healed. That was a type of him being lifted up on the cross. And so Jesus, our Savior, shows us the principles of typology in his own teaching. And then the apostles give us those principles. Adam is a type. And then the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek was a type of Jesus. Who was Melchizedek? He was in Genesis chapter 14. King of Salem. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He was king priest. And he just shows up out of the blue. He doesn't have a father or mother. He doesn't have an end of a life that, that's figurative. He just shows up in the book of genealogies in Genesis. Everybody's begotten by somebody. Everybody has a father and everybody dies. But Melchizedek just shows up, blesses Abraham, and disappears. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has no beginning of days, no end of life. He is a priest forever. And that's all ex explicitly taught in Scripture. Nobody can argue with that. If they argue with it, they don't know the Bible. But then there are implicit types. And this is where it gets more difficult. And I want to try to teach you guys to the best of my ability the principles of deducing out of those explicit types how then to go to the Old Testament and say, well, what are legitimate God-intended types of Jesus in the Old Testament that the New Testament doesn't tell us? Now, we are on shaky ground. Let me just say that. This is shaky ground. Why is this shaky ground what I'm doing right now? Right. So many people have tried to go crazy with parallelomania and everything's a type of Jesus and the wood of the ark is a type of the cross and Rahab's scarlet cloth that the men, she lets the men down. That's a type of the blood of Jesus. That is not a type. Uh, even Martin Luther doing sort of a prospective typology said that the, the uh, swaddling clothes in which Jesus was wrapped as a baby were the law. That's not God intended. There's, there's nothing about that that you can say, that's this because this is clear enough 
relationship, that there's a clear enough parallel that I see that that's there. There's something real and factual and purposeful in this Old Testament picture that then I see fulfilled in either the person or the work of Jesus. So we're on shaky ground because a lot of people go crazy with this. But there's another danger, and that I think is that people don't do it enough. And, and a lot of men, even in Reformed churches, what they do is they want to say, unless it's explicitly stated by Jesus or the apostles, we're not going to say it's a type. So that eliminates Joseph, that eliminates Joshua, that eliminates David to some extent, that eliminates Noah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and all the other major figures of the Old Testament that I believe very clearly God intended to show something of the coming Redeemer. So there's those two dangers, going crazy on the one hand or being overly cautious on the other. Now, uh, what, is, what is a type? Let me read you a definition from uh, one of my professors, David Murray. Um, a type is a prophetic picture of Christ's person and work. It is a real person, place, event, or object that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Christ's person or work. So it's a prophetic picture of Christ's person and work. Something about either his person or his work. It is a prophetic picture. It is a living, factual, actual person, place, object, or event in Old Testament history that is prefiguring something about Jesus and what he's going to do. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because we have an Old Testament, and that Old Testament is, um, is, is covered with shadows and symbols and earthly ordinances, things that God ordained that had to do with worship and had to do with the dwelling place of God and had to do with all those things that God was doing in restoring what Adam lost. When Adam lost when Adam lost everything, God came and he said, I'm going to restore my presence to man. I'm going to restore a dwelling place. I am going to reconcile myself to man. And I'm going to do it by Jesus, my son, the son of God. But in that time of preparation, God did it by types and shadows and ordinances and earthly things. Now let's look just briefly at the different categories of typology. David Murray, and I think he's right, has said that a type is a real person, place, object, or event. Person, place, object, or event in the Old Testament that prefigured the person and work of Christ. Well, we've already talked briefly about people that are explicitly stated, Adam, Romans 5.19 was the representative man. He was a type of Christ. Um, Moses. Moses is said to be a type of Christ. In what way is Moses a type of Christ? He's the old covenant redeemer, typical redeemer. What else? In that sense, he's the mediator of the covenant. He functions as the king, actually. They don't have a king at that point. He functions as king of Israel until the kingdom is set up. And he's a prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, Moses says to Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Him you will hear in all that he speaks. Whoever does not hear him, it will be required of him. And when Jesus comes, he says, I do not speak of my own authority, but he who hears me, hears the one that sent me. And at the transfiguration, the father says, this is my beloved son, hear him. 
And that is a direct fulfillment, that he is the greater than Moses. Remember, Hebrews 3 says that the church, Old and New Testament, is a house. And Moses was faithful as a servant in the house, but Christ is the son over the house because he built the house. So Moses was a type of Jesus as the mediator, old covenant redeemer, prophet, king, and perhaps even priest. He goes up into the mountain on behalf of the people and that role as mediator. He is functioning in a sense as priest until the priesthood goes to who? Who does God call to be priest in the Old Testament? Aaron. And from Aaron, remember the Aaronic line of the Levites? And Aaron is a type of Jesus, isn't he? Aaron uh, stands between God and the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the people of God. There are outbreaks in Israel's history where they're in the wilderness and they provoke God to anger and God's wrath begins to burn against them. And Aaron has to go and stand between with the incense. He has to sacrifice and he has to stand between God and the people. And that picture of the priest standing between God and his people prefigures what Jesus would do, standing between the righteousness of God that should fall on you in judgment and wrath for all eternity and the mercy and grace of God that comes to you because he takes that wrath. He is the high priest. He goes in and he sacrifices himself and he intercedes. So all of, all of that, all of the priestly structure in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the priestly work of Jesus, book of Hebrews again outlines all this for us, gives us all these principles, says that the priesthood was with Levi, but then it transitions to what tribe? To Judah. Now, um, other types in the Old Testament that are not explicit types. After Adam, who would be the next type of Christ? After Adam, immediately after Adam, that the New Testament doesn't explicitly say is a type of Christ, but gives us an implicit parallel well, before Noah, Noah is, before Enoch, before Seth, Abel, Abel. In Hebrews 12, it says that, um, that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus, you can look it up if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 12, 22 maybe. The blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. What did Abel's blood speak? What did God say to Cain after he killed Abel? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What did it cry out for? Justice. Judgment. Yep. Cain had killed his brother. He was culpable of God's justice and judgment. And God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Jesus sheds his blood into the ground of Calvary. His brothers kill him. And what does his blood cry out for? Mercy. The blood of Jesus speaks better things. That's the point of Hebrews. It speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for salvation. Because he's martyred for his witness to Jesus. Abel is sacrificing in obedience to God, looking forward to the coming one. He's the first martyr. He's the first Christian martyr. And he is looking forward to the one to come, the true and greater sacrifice, and his brother kills him for his righteousness. Jesus comes. All the martyrs are pointing to him, who is the righteous God, and he is martyred for his righteousness. He is killed, and his blood goes into the ground, and there is a perfect typological parallel. There are differences. So a type doesn't mean it has to be identical at every point, but the New Testament writers clearly say 
there is some resemblance to what happens with Abel and his blood going into the ground and what happens to Jesus and his blood going into the ground. So I think we have to, we have to say, okay, why does the New Testament writer do this? So Lee, I think in answer to your question, you have to ask, why does the writer of Hebrews do that? There's a reason he can do that because of the organic unity of Scripture. He can do that because of the organic wholeness of Scripture. Now, let me go on just briefly with people. Who would be the next type of Jesus? We've already said it. I, the next clear type that we can go to in the Old Testament that the New does not explicitly say is a type. We've said it already. Noah. Noah's name means rest. And what does his father say about him when he names him? His father's Lamech. His father says, this one will give us rest from the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one will give us rest from the ground which the Lord had cursed. That goes back to Adam and the curse that fell on the ground. And that curse was thorns and thistles. And that curse was death. From dust you are to dust you shall return. Adam's going to go back into the ground out of you was taken. Adam's going to go into the ground that God has cursed with thorns and thistles. God has cursed the ground with thorns and thistles because man came out of the ground and he rebelled against God. And so man is going to go back to the ground out of which he's taken. And the curse is bound up with that picture of the ground. Interestingly, the ground also will become a type because the ground and the land of Israel are all pointing forward to the restoration of all things. The use of that, that imagery of land and ground and earth and everything there. And Jesus' blood cries out to God from the ground. And Jesus is the one that's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new. And he's the one that says what? Come unto me and I will give you rest for your souls. Does Noah give mankind rest from the ground that the Lord has cursed? Not fully, only typically. How does Noah do it typically? How does he typify the rest that Christ is going to provide? Well, he gets onto the ark with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and the animals, and God destroys the world in judgment, and Noah steps off into a typical new creation, a world that has been purged of evil, except the evil that's still in the hearts of Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And as a, a kind of second Adam... Noah stands as the head of humanity in a typical new creation. Now, it is not the ultimate new creation. That's the point. The ultimate new creation is brought about by the blood of Jesus going into the ground. And on the last day, he's going to come back and create a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. He accomplished the work of the new creation in his death. We will see that when he comes again. And he purges this world with fire. And he brings he and all those with him into a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. He is the greater Noah. Interestingly, everybody with Noah in the ark gets saved. Everybody with Jesus gets saved. The ark itself is a type of Christ. Everyone in the ark is saved. Everyone in union with Christ is saved. The wrath of God comes down around the ark, and yet the people inside the ark are safe. The wrath of God comes down on Jesus, and yet those in union with Jesus are safe. Because the wrath comes crashing down around him and he protects his people who are in union with him. Now, this is not allegorizing. This is not mystical early church allegory. This is biblically intended. Why is this biblically intended? Because history is linear. History is linear. 
Now, the Greeks taught us that history was cyclical. You'll often read, I was reading a book last week called Einstein's Dreams. It's a philosophical book about fatalism and um, talking about history being cyclical. Everything that's happened will happen again and it just happens repeatedly and it goes around in a big circle. That is not the biblical model of history at all. In fact, God has created history to be linear. It is always moving to a desired end. God is always moving it to a desired end and that desired end was Jesus and then the culmination of all things in Christ. And so everything that happens prior to Christ in history, not just in the Bible, but in history, in some way is related and moving forward to what God is going to do in Jesus. In the Bible specifically, covenantal revelation is about him. How do I know that? Luke 24, turn to Luke 24. Jesus has accomplished salvation. He um, has appeared to his disciples. And in verse 44 of Luke 24, he says to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, what are most people going to say? They're going to say, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus. No, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. There's not just a lot of prophecy in the Old. There's not just 400 some prophecies about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus in the Old Testament. It's all moving to the Messiah who's going to save us from our sins. Everything God does, he does intentionally with a view to redemption. Now, Jesus teaches that, I believe, in this verse. He says elsewhere that all the scriptures speak of him. He means all the scriptures. He doesn't mean that there's some little hidden way under every word that somehow you know, reveals him, but organically, organically taken as a whole, it's all related to him. Now, I think that seeing people as types of Christ in the Old Testament is a bit easier, perhaps, than, um, than seeing places. Um, remember, where's the first place in Scripture? Eden. Eden. It's the first place. It's, it's the holy place. It's the temple. It's... Sacred space is what the biblical studies people call sacred space. It's the holy place. God chose to dwell in one certain place on earth with his creature, with his image bearers. And that's a picture of the temple because the temple is the dwelling place of God. It's the one place he comes and he dwells. Well, Adam loses that place. And so there's a number of uh, reestablishments, typical pictures of the of the re-institution um, of God's dwelling with man until he finally comes and dwells in us in the new covenant, and then we dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. So everything's moving there with regard to place. Where would be the second place God dwelt, physical locale, with his people? Well, you have Abraham and Bethel. That's very good. Abraham's moving around, pitching a tent, sacrificing. Those are pictures of microcosms of that re-establishment. Where's the big, in the Old Testament, where's the big place? Israel. 
Well, Israel first, and we'll get to Jerusalem. If I could draw on a board a bullseye, the outside would be Israel, and then within it would be Jerusalem, and within that would be the temple, and within that would be the holy place. And all those places represent the re-redemption and re-establishment of God's presence with his people. What was the promised land called? It was called a land flowing with milk and honey. That was to draw your mind back to the garden. A land bountiful like a garden. Remember the grapes were so big, they couldn't believe it. It was like giants lived there. God's rich bounty on vegetation and fruit. And so, so that was to be a picture of God's restoration of the garden. Interestingly, when Adam gets kicked out of the garden, what does God do? What does he put at the east of the garden? He puts two cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back to the presence of God, showing the impossibility of man to get back there on his own. Man would have to go through the sword of God's justice. He would never make it. Christ goes through the sword of God's justice to open that way back. But when Joshua crosses the Jordan to come into the promised land with Israel, he is met by the angel of the Lord who has a drawn sword before they enter the land. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And the angel says, neither, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I've been sent before you. And basically that you may know that the battle is the Lord's, that God is essentially showing Israel with the man with the drawn sword. He's about to make the way back. He's about to open that dwelling place back up in the land. So um, the temple then, remember when the temple is finally built, The temple has pomegranates, palm trees, and lilies carved around the outside and a vine around it. What's the point of that? It's a picture of the garden. It's a picture of God's reestablishing his presence that Adam lost in the garden. Now, ultimately, he does all that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, you are the temple of the living God and the spirit of God dwells in you and I will make my my home with them. And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, uh, my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our dwelling place with him. So in the new covenant, we are the temple. Now, he was the temple in the fullest sense, wasn't he? Because the temple was where God dwelt. And uh, Colossians, Paul says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Speaking of the temple of his body. So the temple was a type of Jesus. And that means all the things within the temple pertain in some way to the person and work of Jesus. What was in the temple? Well, a holy place, what was outside the holy place? Well, there was, a, there was most holy place, holy place, the outer court, there was an altar where sacrifice was made. That's a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. And within the holy place, there was a table with showbread. And remember, Jesus himself is the bread that came down from heaven that gives life to the world. There was a lampstand there. He is the light of the world. All those things are prefiguring him. Within the holy place, what was there? What was in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. Now let's talk about that. I just wrote something recently on this because I think it's fascinating. The writer of Hebrews begins to tell us how the Ark of the Covenant was a picture of Jesus. And then he says, there's more, but I don't have time to go into it right now. I remember as a new Christian being like, why didn't you go into it? He says, basically, there's not enough time. There's, There's more, but there's not enough time for me to go into that. Well, how would the Ark of the Covenant, what was the Ark of the Covenant? What was it, though? It was a box, overlaid with gold, 
And it had three levels. The first level was the inside of the box. The second level was the mercy seat that went over it. And the third level were the two angels overshadowing one another and the glory of God came down and shone forth the Shekinah glory. Now, those three levels, what was in the first level? What was in the box? The, the Ten Commandments, the manna, the golden bowl full of manna, and Aaron's rod that blossomed. Now, we need to ask the question, why? Why did God put those three things into the ark. Well, if indeed the ark is a type of Christ, it would make sense. He keeps the law in himself. He is the obedient one that fulfills the law, keeps the law. Um, he is the bread that came down from heaven, John 6. He said, Moses didn't give you the true bread. My, your father gives you the true bread, for I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me, he is the manna. What did manna mean, incidentally? What is it? In Hebrew, it's what is it? This mysterious heavenly bread came down and they were like, what is it? And Jesus comes and they say, who are you? So the manna is a type of Jesus. The manna is a type of Jesus. Jesus draws that out in John 6 clearly. He makes that explicit link. That wasn't the true bread. I am the true bread. That was real bread. But it pointed forward to some spiritual truth about him. Um, Aaron's rod that blossomed. There were some guys in Israel that were jealous that Aaron was getting to be the priest and they weren't. And they were jealous. Who made you priest, Aaron? Why do you guys, you have too much power. And so God said, fine, tell them all to put their rods out. And the one that blossoms, that's the one I've chosen. And so it showed God's chosen priest. Jesus is God's chosen priest. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that no man takes that honor to themselves, but he who is called by God. And so Jesus, those three things show something of his person and his saving work. And then the second level was what? The mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? What was it? Right. The priest went in once a year and he took the blood for himself and for the people and he sprinkled it there. What's the point of that? Well, that prefigures the blood of Jesus clearly for the remission of sins and mercy is possible. But it went over the place. The law was inside so that when God looked down, he didn't look on the transgressions. There was blood between the transgressions and the holiness of God. Because God said, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, there will be remission for sins. I will pass over. Remember in the Passover, when I see the blood. And so on the mercy seat, that blood covered the transgressions of the people so that God didn't see their iniquities and hold them against them. That's what we need more than anything. Like this is important because if you don't have the blood of sprinkling, then God is looking at you in light of your transgressions. God is going to deal with you on judgment day in light of your transgressions. If you don't have blood between you, between him and your violations of his law. So that's what that was prefiguring. Then over the ark, you had the two angels overlooking and you had the Shekinah glory. God came down when the sacrifice was made and he dwelt there and his glory manifested itself in that one place. And, you know, Peter says that, that the things of salvation are the things which angels long to look into. That's probably what that was showing forth. But when Jesus dies, is buried and is risen and the women come to the tomb, what do they find? They find two angels, one at the head, one at the feet where the body of Jesus lay. So all of that is showing forth something moving and pointing us to what he did 
in his person and work. Now, let me just say to anybody that might watch this and to all of you, I am not making this up. Richard Sibbs, a famous Puritan, saw a lot of this. Gerhardus Voss, who is sort of my theological hero, saw much of this. There are lots of people that got this, lots of Puritans that got it. We have lost it. And part of why we've lost it is we really don't like to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We want to focus on our own performance and you know, we, we, we like to be moved away from Jesus. That's, you know, that's something that we really have to come to terms with, that it's hard to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Um, it's easy to read the Bible for sort of moral renovation explicitly and, and only exclusively to read it for moral renovation. It's hard to read it for the redemption that you need as a sinner, and for the sanctification that comes through Jesus. Now, uh, so typical places and objects, we've just talked about both of those together. And then there are typical events. Um, Noah's flood is said to be a type of spiritual baptism in 2 Peter. Um, uh, is it 2 Peter? I believe it is. Chapter 3, 1 Peter 3 or 2 Peter 3. The flood is said to be the, the baptism, spirit baptism in our heart is said to be the anti-type of the, the waters of Noah's baptism. I won't get into all this because there's a lot of nuances here about baptism and how Christ's death is baptism and how his spirit working in us is baptism, washing away our sin, cleansing us just like the waters of Noah's flood cleanse the earth, bringing salvation just like Noah was saved on that water that judged the world. There was salvation and judgment through that water. Um, water baptism doesn't save us. Spirit baptism is what um, we need, the application of Christ's saving blood. Uh, the water from the rock in the wilderness was a preview of the life-sustaining water provided by our Lord. Remember that account? Uh, Israel's in the wilderness. They're thirsty. You would be too. Um, and they, they're complaining for water. And so God tells Moses to do what? Take his staff and do what? Strike. Strike the rock and water will come out. And water does come out. And they drink in abundance and then it happens again. They get thirsty and they complain. And what does God tell Moses to do? Speak. Talk to the rock and water will come out. But Moses gets angry and he strikes the rock. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 says that rock was Christ. Those are the words of scripture. That rock was Christ. Um, that rock prefigured and typified something about Jesus. Remember when he is pierced on the cross, blood and water come out. Um, he is the one that when he is struck by the rod of justice, the spirit flows out of him. The spirit is always likened to water in scripture, coming out of his heart, flowing to us from the heart of Jesus who got struck. Now, it's interesting, Christ only needs to be struck once, and then you need to ask him for the Spirit. Moses was to strike the rock once, he struck it again, and God got angry. If indeed that is true, that's why God didn't tell him to strike the rock twice. He told him to strike it once and then to ask for the water. And so I think something of that is probably being typified in the experience of Israel. Now, that's an explicit statement because Paul says that rock was Christ. He clearly says that. So I'm not going in and just getting fanciful. There's another account in Israel's history, though, that I may be wrong about, but um, Israel's in the wilderness and they're thirsty, and they come to this uh, pond or river or oasis, and the water's bitter and they can't drink it. And so what does God tell them to do? 
He tells them to take a tree, a dead tree, and throw it in there, and it makes the water well. Now, possibly, that's pointing forward to the cross, making all of our bitterness sweet, taking everything and reversing it, possibly. New Testament doesn't say that. Now, it does tell us that the cross makes all our bitterness of sin and death sweet because Christ takes it all on himself, but it doesn't say that event. So we do need to be careful. But these events happened for a reason in redemptive history. They happened to prefigure something. Now, um, let me tell you where this really comes to bear. And I know I'm dumping a lot on you. We have about 10, 15 minutes, if you can just hang with me. Um, Where this really comes to bear is when you have typical people, places, and events all coming together to prefigure something of the work of Jesus his person and his work. Now, this is where I think the ball often gets dropped. Um, The scriptures say that the church is the new Jerusalem. You guys do understand that, right? Revelation, the new Jerusalem, the church is like a bride that comes down out of heaven. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the heavenly city. We are part of his heavenly dwelling place. We are his bride. So the church is called Jerusalem. And that means that the city was a type of some aspect of the saving work of Jesus for and in his people. The city, the physical city, prefigured the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, Romans, uh, Revelation 21, 22, uh, Galatians 4, all say those things. All call Jerusalem above, the mother of us all. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the city of the living God as the new covenant people forever. Um, but Jerusalem is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed several times, um, but it is once really fully destroyed in um, uh, the uh, 6th century BC by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, right? That is the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonian captivity. All the Jews are transported over to Babylon. The city is destroyed. And then the rest of the Old Testament tells us about what? The rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the walls of the city, the rebuilding of the temple. All those things are rebuilt. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, um, uh, Habakkuk, all those things, all those prophets and all those men are dealing with the rebuilding of the city and the temple. It's they're, they're trying to rebuild that typical place of God's dwelling. And God has told him to do that. But God is not going to forever dwell in a physical city, in a physical temple, with physical walls. He is going to build the walls of Jerusalem by his death and resurrection. Jesus is going to destroy the temple in his death, and he's going to rebuild the city. He's going to, be, he's going to rise up, and we are the new Jerusalem in him. We rise up with him. Now, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. That's one of the main works that Nehemiah does. He rebuilds the walls. Turn to Nehemiah um, with me, if you would. Um, Nehemiah is before Esther and Job. And turn back to chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. 
Um, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with a certain number of Jews that God has sent back. And he has some enemies who are trying to stop him. He has Samballat and Tobiah, um, an Ammonite, and uh, I forget where both of them were from, but they were, they were Canaanites. They were the enemies of God. They prefigured um, the great enemy of God, Satan. They prefigured Satan and his kingdom trying to stop the work of God and his kingdom. They were trying to stop the rebuilding of the walls. Uh, Nehemiah had protection from Cyrus, the king. They had protection. They had, um, they had um, the blessing even of a pagan king, but they had pagan enemies who were trying to stop the city from being rebuilt and stop the work of God. And Nehemiah's up on this wall. And let's read, um, let's read uh, Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Samballat and Tobiah and Gershom, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left on it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Samballat and Gershom sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together in Hakafarim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. So Nehemiah is up on the wall. And his enemies come and they say, get yourself down. And he says, I cannot come down. And I'm not going to come down. I'm going to finish the work that God has called me to do. Now, Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem by his atoning death and resurrection is on the cross. And his enemies say what to him? Get yourself down. And Jesus essentially says, I cannot come down. And then he, he stays until he says, it is finished. You see, there is a parallel. Now, the New Testament doesn't say that what I just said is inspired and intended by God. I believe it is because I'm looking at Nehemiah as a typical Christ-like figure, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus rebuilds the city of God. He, he puts protective walls around it. Revelation's clear about that, that he is the one that builds all things. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he is the one building and he has enemies that try to stop him constantly but he will not come down. He will finish the work God has given. So there's a typical person, a typical place, and a typical event coming together, working together. Now, this happens in David's life. David is king of Israel. David is clearly a type of Christ. How? How is David a, a type of Christ? Well, he's king, but before he's king, what is he? Shepherd from Bethlehem. Jesus is the good shepherd from Bethlehem. He is the son of David. What else? He is hated by his brothers. Is this the same David that... Kills Goliath. Yep. And even in the battle against Goliath, there's a picture of the battle of Christ against Satan because there are two representative figures fighting for their people. Israel's not fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are not fighting Israel. David's fighting Goliath. And whoever wins, wins the battle for their people. So you have federal representation. Um, David is God's chosen, his anointed. He's the one after God's own heart. He's the one God makes a covenant with. He gives him the throne. He sets him up in the kingdom. And yet David spends much of his life homeless. He spends much of his life living in caves. Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There are clear typological pictures. David has a betrayer named Ahithophel. Ahithophel plots with David's son, to kill David. When his plot is found out, Ahithophel goes and he hangs himself. Jesus has a betrayer, Judas. Judas 
plots with those who want to kill Jesus. When his plot is found out, he goes and he kills himself. There are clear historical references. Now, you can say, wow, I mean, that's just a lot of neat little parallels, but how I know God intended this? Because it wasn't about David. It wasn't about David. You have two options. David is even either a good example, be like David, or he's a type of Christ and an example. Those are your, those are your options. Either the Bible's about David, be like David. David was valiant. He was courageous. Be a good leader like David. Or... David was a picture prophecy of Jesus. Now, in Ezekiel, in the prophecies about the Messiah, God says, I will raise up David to rule over you. When? David's been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. When is God going to raise up David? In the thousand-year millennium? No, when Jesus comes. He is David. The name David is applied to Jesus. What does the name David mean? Beloved. What does God say about his son? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There is so much more. There's so much more in the scripture. So much more of this. Joseph, we've talked about him in the past. Joshua's a type. Um, Job is a type of Christ. How's Job a type of Christ? Yeah, the righteous sufferer. He suffers for righteousness sake. He didn't do anything. Jesus is the great righteous sufferer.